0: Good morning. Today as Hiram wrote in the article for the bulletin this month is a special look at some of the greatest questions of life and in examining this we are going to try to go through what we believe to be a logical order of questions and so we're going to begin as you see in the title before you from the broadest and work our way down To a more narrow uh, conclusion regarding the church and that will be on the last Sunday of this month and so I encourage you if you can to be here for that series uh, bring somebody with you because these questions may be questions you've pondered or somebody you know has or maybe somebody that you're talking with has and we can provide that service for them we want to the very best that we can you know there are any number of questions we love to ask them and Some of them may seem kind of silly in nature. Perhaps you've heard or have uttered questions along these lines. Can a pregnant woman drive in the HOV lane? Is it possible to buy real estate on the moon? Why do they have interstate highways in Hawaii? How much wood could a woodchuck chuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? You know, questions are a part of life. Really, infinitely, we could ask questions. There are as many questions as we can conceive of thoughts. And as long as we're in this world, from the time that we come into it as little children, we're asking questions because we want to have greater knowledge. We want to understand the world that we are a part of. And questions are a significant way for us to do this. But you would admit with me that some questions are more important than other questions. New Scientist magazine had a survey, a study a few years ago, in which it sought to ask the eight most important questions of life. And in doing so, they did so from a place of perceived authority. They are known as the most popular weekly science and technology magazine in the world. And so some of the questions that formed the articles that made up this series are questions like, What is life? Do we have free will? What happens when we die? And will we ever have, as Richard Dawkins puts it, a theory of everything? But I suggest to you that every question of significance that has been or ever will be asked implies the greatest question of all. Is there a God? How can we know there is a God? Gallup did a survey in 2019 to ask what people thought about the origin of life. And this may surprise you, but 40% of those surveyed held to the strict view that God created the world in its present form less than 10,000 years ago. Which that would line up with the biblical worldview. Alongside of that, they found that 33% in addition believed that God created the world, though he did so through the process of evolution. And 22% said that this world came into being through the process of naturalistic evolution with no God being involved. That surprised me that almost three and four would in some way credit God for the beginning of everything. And yet the ACLU recently released a series of statements from various scientific and academic associations and societies that praise what it called the infallible view of naturalistic evolution and the thoroughly impossible idea of intelligent design. I've got to believe with theologians on one side and and those who would profess themselves to be academic and scientific experts on the other side, that there are a great many people sitting on the sidelines and they're asking the question, can we know there is a God? If so, how can we know? Let me submit this to you by way of introduction, that the existence of God is the first truth implied in the Bible. It's found right there in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And the Apostle Paul would look over all of creation throughout all the generations and he would say that there was a time in which all people believed in the existence of a creator God. Romans 1 verse 21 through 28. But somewhere along the line, belief in God was substituted with a belief in something else. And we've got to ask ourselves, how is it? People have substituted the idea of the existence of God with some alternate explanation. Now, I am not a philosopher and I'm not a scientist, and my education bears that out. My specialty, such as it is, is in the Bible. And so what I'd like to do is just look at one out of 1189 chapters of the Bible and see if we can't explore in a way that is fair to the evidence that question, how can we know that there's a God? You've already looked at those words. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who has set your glory Above the heavens and out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of the enemy that you might cause the enemy and the vengeful to cease. When I consider the heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visited him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have set him over the works of your hands and you put all things under his feet, sheep and oxen and all beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Now out of that psalm, I'd like to make an observer, three observations and the lesson is yours. I'd like us to examine that first question in this series. How can we know that there is a God? And I'd like Psalm 8 to provide us with three answers. First of all, from Psalm 8, we can know that there is a God through His fingerprints. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, we are brought face to face with the glory and the magnitude of the God that's presented in Scripture. Now as we look and think existentially, that is about existence, you and I exist. And we're aware of it. And not only are we aware of it, but in our awareness we are able to make a variety of moral and uh, ethical judgments. We're able to make evaluations and estimations. We can look at the mountains and the beaches and the oceans. We can look at the various waterways. We can look at the countrysides. And as we do so, we can see and we can make value judgments about them. We can think about the aromas of roses and fresh baked bread and perfumes and citrus and other things. And out of that, we can make value judgments about them. We can do that with everything regarding our sight and our smell and and sound and taste and every other sensation. And we can judge things about their, their beauty, their wonder and their existence now we can do the same thing with sights and sounds and smells and tastes and other sensations that we find to be unpleasant even repulsive but the very ability to do that implies the existence of god it is referred to often as the aesthetic argument it's the idea that our world is not a black and white world that we it could have been bland in every detail but it's not And we can observe that and we can see that and our ability to discern that there's the inferior and the superior, that there's high quality and low quality points to the existence of God. And that's exactly what David is setting out to tell us in Psalm chapter 8 verse 1 and verse 2. You know, in the uh, Psalms at the end of that psalm book where there's a lot of praise reserved, in Psalm 148, verse 7 through 13, we have the words that make up the second and the third verse of the song, Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. And you have all of these different witnesses that come together and they declare the existence of God and His majesty and His glory and His strength. And he says, let them praises give Jehovah for His name is exalted His glory is set above the earth and the heavens, Psalm 148 and verse 13. And you know, we really could spend more time than than we we have, uh, I'm sure, in talking about all that would point to the glory of God in just this one point. And in the vastness of all that we could look at, I want to just look at two examples of the glory of God that is set above the heavens The first example that I would point you to is the largest star ever observed. It was observed in Germany in 1860. It's called UY Scuti. And let me give you just a little bit of perspective about the the vastness of this great red supergiant star. About a million Earths could fit inside the sun. But almost five billion suns could fit inside of UY Scuti. Its measurement is so vast, it's hard for us to think with our calculations and to see how big it is. And God set that as one among infinite numbers of stars in our galaxy, in our universe. And then there's two mass J2126. You've heard of that, right? It's a planet. It's an exoplanet. And even though you've never heard of it, it is 15 times larger than Jupiter. But it is in orbit around its sun. But its orbit is 7,000 times greater than our orbit is around our sun. And so they have to do a, a rounded estimation. And our belief in the young earth would lead us to believe it's still not done it yet. But one rotation of, of two mass J2126 around its sun is going to take it 900,000 years. We do it one time. Once a year we go around our sun. It is one trillion miles from its sun. That's one million million miles from J, to mass J2126 to its sun. This demonstrates to us the great glory of God. And so David says you have set your glory high above the heavens so that we can see and we can know that there is a God. But you know, you you go straight from that to the other end of the spectrum. You talk about the vastness of outer space, in which we have 93 billion light years in diameter from one end to the other. That's our universe. It's vast. It's endless. And then David says, I want you to see the glory of God in the simple complexity of a child. You want one of the greatest proofs for somebody who doesn't believe that there's a God? I want you to look at a little baby. And out of that, I want you to be able to see its beauty and its attractiveness, its instincts, its development, its trustworthiness, its, its faith in others. All of these things, even though a baby's not trying, they declare their maker's praise. You're maybe not wondering what's in front of you. If you're on social media, you may know. But this is the first picture... Of our first grandbaby. You'll see others I'm pretty sure after this one. But this little butter bean. At nine weeks and two days old on Tuesday. Already at that size. Had her neck. And her head. And her bones are beginning to form. She uh, has her nose visible. If one were able to have the magnification in order to do that. And, and this little baby is moving even though emily can 't feel it now today at ten weeks she is able to bend her arms at her elbows and her legs at her knees. She has fingers and toes that are distinct, and one week from today, that butterbean's going to be a strawberry she 's going to be two inches long, and this intricacy leads us to echo with the psalmist who says that you have woven me in secret curiously wrought me in the lowest parts of the earth you wove me in my mother's womb I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your works and this my soul knows right well look at the intricate design of a baby and you will see that there is a God his fingerprint you know that song we sing in vacation Bible school I know we're going to sing it coming up in a few weeks the song about the hippo his fingerprints are everywhere just to show how much he cares he's shows it in such vast examples as that which is seen in our observable universe all the way down to the intricacy of a little baby how can we know that there's a god we can know first of all because of his fingerprints he has set his glory in such a way that we can see and know but furthermore we can know that there's a god because of his blueprints In just one verse, in verse 3, do you hear what he says? When I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. When you look at what he says there, that word ordained means to set up, to put in motion, to put into place, to cause to be. You know, scientists have for several centuries now been able to very intelligently identify some of the things that we observe in life. Kepler gave us the law of planetary motions that's divided into various categories. That's the law of orbits, the law of areas, and the law of periods. And then um, along comes um, our guy with gravity. I just lost his name. You know who I'm talking about. He had a couple of laws. Newton. Newton's law of universal gravitation. That tells us that any two objects exert gravitational force on one another. And while Newton was at it, by the way, a a devout believer in God, he gave us those laws of motion. That objects in motion tend to stay in motion unless they're acted on by an outside force. That mass uh, equals force times, force equals mass times acceleration. You can tell I'm a preacher, not a scientist. But you also think about what he said that uh, objects in motion, uh, objects in, uh, an object in motion does so until it's acted on. Objects in motions tend to stay in motion. These laws that are put into place are all pointing us. And by the way, there's the laws of thermodynamics, which Snow kind of summarized by saying you can't win, you can't break even, but you can't quit the game. These are immutable laws scientific laws that exist that god codified he ordained he put them in place where did they come from there is no such thing as spontaneous generation something does not come from nothing the causality argument says there is something why is there not simply nothing at all and because there is something it points to a designer The teleological argument says something very similar. The ontological argument says that if God could possibly exist, then God, since we conceive of Him, must exist. There's the cosmological arguments that speak of what is necessitated, that movement necessitates a mover, that effect necessitates a cause, that a degree of perfection necessitates a pinnacle of perfection, that design necessitates a designer, And so what David is showing just just in passing is we can know that there's a God in the blueprint of the universe in those unalterable scientific laws that exist. It's amazing. Moses, in the first chapter of the Bible... Living in superstitious Egypt, before he would set pen to paper, as it were, would say that God made there to be two lights, a greater one to rule the day, a lesser one to rule the night. He also made the stars in that one sentence. Think about what's implied. There's the greater light, the sun, just a medium-sized star in our galaxy, very small star in the, the, the vast and endless number of orbs that make up the universe. But this is our star, the star around which we rotate. And when we think about the sun, the sun is 93 million miles away. It is 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If it were any closer or further away, there would not be uh, existence. There would not be life on this earth If it was in a different position and the earth was 50 degrees hotter or cooler, then there could not be light. But we need the sun to give us light and to give us heat. And so Moses points to and David points to the sun in its unique place that allows us to be here. That's part of a divine blueprint. Well, then there's the moon. Certainly, by comparison, not as impressive in its size or its distance from the earth, but just as necessary. Whereas the sun is 856,400 miles in diameter, the moon is only 2,160 miles in diameter. It's not 93 million miles away, it's 239,000 miles away, and yet it is just where it needs to be. Same side of the moon is always facing the earth. We never see more than 59% of the moon, and yet in its rocking motion, it allows life on this earth to exist. It controls the tides. You ever thought about if the moon was a little bit closer, we'd be covered in ocean. If the moon was a little bit further away, we'd be a desert, lifeless. It is exactly where it needs to be to prepare and to to utilize the existence of earth. Life can exist because the moon is where it is. In its design, and its blueprint. And then we think about the stars. Those globulous orbs that emit light. That men throughout the centuries have tried to figure out how many are there. God gave the answer to that in implication in Genesis 15 and verse 5 when he speaks to Abraham and he says it's more than you can count. But the ancients thought they could count them. They thought there were 3,000 stars. They tried to name them. Now with all of our modern methods, we still can't count the number of stars that there are. But God can and he calls them all by name. Psalm 147 and verse 4. And if he designed it, we certainly know that he could do that that's the lesser impressive feat and then there's the planets When you think about the solar system in which we find ourselves, there is a distance of the planets that go anywhere from 36 million miles to 3 billion miles from the sun. And they all are in systematic orbit around the sun. It takes anywhere from 88 days to 248 years. And the the planet that we're the most obsessed about is Mars. But there's the sandstorms, there's the cold, there's the radiation that would suggest it would have been impossible for life to have ever existed there. But what about the earth? The earth is six sextillion tons. You know, in a sermon a year or two ago, I mentioned that fact for a a different application, but I want you to think about its weight. It is because the earth is six sextillion tons that it is able to stay in orbit. If it was heavier, then there would, believe it or not, the attraction of the sun would be greater and it would be pulled into the sun and there would be no life. If it was lighter, then it would be pulled out of orbit and it would be a frozen ball that's hurtling throughout space. It is exactly where it needs to be to sustain life. And here's a couple of other things. You know, there would not be life on this earth if the earth was not tilted at about 23.5 degrees. There would not be life if the outer core of the the crust of the earth was not an average of about 8 miles. Not 9, not 10, not 7, but 8. That there would be no existence on this earth if the atmosphere was not made up of 21% oxygen. Why not 30? Why not 10? But it is exactly what it needs to be for there to be life on this earth. One last thing on that. For a protein to occur naturally, to come into being in the nature, you have 150 proteins. There's what they call left-handed proteins and right-handed proteins. To form a new protein, they've all got to be left-handed proteins and they've got to be in sequential order. For a new protein to come into existence in nature, the odds of that are 1 in 10 to the 164th power. In other words, a number too big for us to fathom. But every living thing is made of proteins. Enough to make Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of DNA, to say it would almost take a miracle for this universe to come into existence. Almost a miracle. How can we know there's a God? What about the blueprint that we see, and we've just looked at a sample of that. These scientific laws that are unchangeable, immutable, that demonstrate that there's a God. But really, in the, the last couple of minutes that we have, the most important thing that we need to reflect on is what most of the psalm is about. How can we know that there's a God? We can know that there's a God because of His imprint. David's focus mostly in this psalm is not on the vastness of the universe and the solar system and the galaxy and the the planets or even earth. It's on one single act of creation. Moses tells us about it. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the creeping things. And so they made man in their image and after it their likeness. And in the image of God created they them Male and female, he created them. David says, When I consider the, the uh, heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? That you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visited him. That question he wants us to ponder. And there's at least three answers we can give to that. In Psalm 8, 6 through 8 in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, we are told our place in this universe. It is a, it is a privileged place. That God has created conditions such that we can live here. He has set us. We're not to worship this world. It's for our sustenance. We're to be good stewards of it, but it's for our use. He says that these things exist for us. He set us over those things. He's put them under our feet. And then we go back and we ask that question again. What is man that you're mindful of? him? you've made him a little lower than the angels. We know their power and their position that they occupy right now, but... He's not entrusted the world to come to them. He's entrusted it to us. In this privileged, wonderful world, we see our place. Our place is above the animals. It's above the angels. But then we visit that one more time. The Hebrews writer helps us to understand the importance of that question. When he takes what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you visited him, you made him a little lower than the angels, and he applies that to Jesus Christ. Our value, our treasured place in God's heart And all that is made is seen in that he tasted death for every man. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. If we need to understand what this is all about, where we came from, why we're here, and where we're going, as we think about the existence of God, it is that God sent his son to die for us so that we could understand our place in this world. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, That if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled the world in himself and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, not imputing their trespasses against them, and has given unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God, for God made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How can we know there's a God? Because God chose out of all that He made to make us in His image. And to provide for us that free will that New Scientist was asking about. And when we exercise free will and we made the choice to not follow Him, to be disobedient to Him, that there's a plan so that we can live forever with Him. Yes, it's part of the answer. I know it's thoroughly theological. It's not as scientific as the first two points, but it's just as important and it just as easily points us to the existence of God as the rest of it. The psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmaments are showing His handiwork. Day the day utters speech, and night the night shows knowledge. There, there is no voice or language where their tongue is not heard. Their line is going out throughout all the earth. It's set them as a tabernacle for the sun. It's like a a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and it rejoices as a strong man to run a race. Throughout Scripture, the Psalms and the other writers are pointing us to the existence of God. That's the inside of the concert hall. I didn't want to hurt your eyes. Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles is made of, uh, of stainless steel on the outside. And while they've rectified the situation, when they first made this concert hall... It, it was to blinding effects, literally. Because outside of that, some of the panels were so shiny that the people in the promenade residences across the street from the concert hall, they were blinded. And, and when it reflected it at the noonday sun, it made their rooms 15 degrees warmer. The furniture was too hot to sit on. And so they complained to the people who made that. And, and they the engineers got involved and they found the offending panels and they sanded them, gave them a matte finish. To blunt the glare. I I think if I would have lived across the street from there, I would have complained too. But you know, I feel like that's what people are trying to do with the glory of God. And what we've seen today, they're trying to blunt it. They're trying to take away that glory. And saying that there is no God who caused the effect. And while they may convince themselves, and while they may convince some others, friends, the evidence is overwhelming. And it declares just what we sang. There is a God. He is alive. In Him we live and we survive. But we do more than that. We exist in the very image of God. The subjects of His special love. Able to have a relationship with the one that powerful. That He gave us what we've talked about today. It lets you know how important you, the individual, are to Him. That He cares that much about you that He's given you such a wonderful world and has given you such an exalted place in it. And He's given a plan for you to be His follower. Maybe you are fully aware of that plan and what it involves and you're ready to make the decision to act on your faith, to repent of sins and to be baptized. We're ready to help you. We'd love to do it right now. There's nothing else going on today that even approaches how important this is. Maybe you want to pull us aside and we can do it at any time, day or night. Or maybe you're a child of God and you've forgotten your privileged place in the eyes of God. And maybe you need to make some changes in your life. Or maybe you need us to pray with you. If that's your need, if any need you have that you want to respond to publicly, we would encourage you to do it as Mike leads us in the song. Let's stand and sing.